0: I'm Trent Jacobs, and this is SBE Talks 2. Nathan Meehan. Welcome to the SBE Podcast. I'm your host, Trent Jacobs, digital editor of the Journal of Petroleum Technology. Today, we're speaking with Nathan Meehan, who is the president of Gaffney Klein and Associates and also the 2016 SBE president. Nathan is joining us today to talk about an SBE paper that he authored and presented back in March of this year. And it happens to be the most downloaded SBE paper of 2019. And the title, Is This the End of Petroleum Engineering as We Know It? So, Nathan, before we get into your paper and some of the conclusions, I was going to say, could you just introduce us to the audience? I think that uh, a lot of our listeners are going to know you from being the SB
1: president, um, but what do you really do? Sure. I uh, am employed by Gaffney Klein, which is a consulting company. I'm a petroleum engineer with 40 plus years experience. I have a PhD from Stanford. I've worked in hydraulic fracturing, horizontal wells, reservoir characterization, but mainly uh the highlight of my career was clearly the time I spent as SPE president. That was great. I have six kids, nine grandsons, and one granddaughter on the way. And uh, you were telling me before we got on here that the, the the
0: most popular podcast you've ever done was about barbecue.
1: I am a kind of expert in the brisket and rib department. I've kind of built a big outdoor kitchen, got lots of smokers, and love to barbecue. Well, man,
0: it, that sounds like a good topic. Unfortunately, we're going to have to uh, change gears here and get into uh, a slightly more meaty topic, um, the, the future of our business. And uh, so I, I wanted to get into this the, this paper, the end of petroleum engineering as we know it. Uh, this is a super compelling headline from somebody who writes headlines. Good job. Uh, what does it mean?
1: Well, first, it's not my prediction that petroleum engineering is over. It is a way to start this discussion about what petroleum engineering is going to evolve to. And I think it's the evolution and the needed changes we're going to have are a little more radical than some people think. I think that uh, the kind of petroleum engineering that I learned and that I spent much of my career doing is kind of a thing of the past.
0: Okay. Well, give me an example. What, what kind of changes are you, are you seeing coming down the pike?
1: Well, the first and most compelling is related to the digital revolution. We are changing how we do business. We're changing uh, how we use engineers. AI is uh, sort of not quite there yet, and we're using it in certain ways. But my prediction here is that it's going to continue to augment and change what we do and how we approach it. The next, of course, is related to environmental issues, carbon management, Our industry is under pressure like it's never been under before. We're going to have potentially declining demand for some of our products. Uh, You know, we're going to have to compete with renewables. We're going to have to be cleaner. We're going to have to be more sustainable. We're going to have to figure out a way to actually capture carbon and lower our footprints. Otherwise, we're not going to attract the best and the brightest. For much of my career... It's been really easy to attract petroleum engineers, at least during the boom times. We were able to get the best students. We were able to, to attract uh, students from other industries, like you know, and, as well as chemical engineers, mechanical engineers. We're not really seeing those students be as interested in petroleum engineering now. And unless we have a better model, uh, we're not going to be able to retain them and track them.
0: Well I heard you speak about this recently at an SB symposium and and it was really compelling uh, the way you you outlined this this uh, this thesis one of the things that stood out to me was that you you said in your research, uh, these environmental concerns, which are mounting globally, uh, it seems like you know every day we we sort of uh, get a new angle on on that story, but that wasn't necessarily the number one reason that we were having trouble as an industry pulling in new recruits. Um, what was the number one reason that you found?
1: Well, it's the cyclicity of demand for petroleum engineers and the huge number of layoffs that we have. It's uh, it's really an. A problem that we've had for a long time when demand drops and when crude oil product prices drop, uh, people cut their expenses. And a lot of oil companies, major expenses, and particularly service companies, some of those are people. And we have shown a huge uh, ability to cut back on the number of employees and lay people off time and time again Uh, with increased productivity. And you know, sort of the number of engineers it takes to drill a given well to produce, you know, a hundred wells or a thousand wells, our our willingness to fire people is just. caught, I think it's catching up with us. We, uh, I, I remember people asking me, why is it that employees are willing to quit and go to another company so readily? Don't they show any loyalty? When in fact, uh, oil companies and have not shown that same loyalty to the employees in many cases. They were very, very eager to, uh, not eager. Uh, they were very willing to do what they needed to do, cut costs. And that included uh, cutting back on people. So we've had a long period now of relatively soft oil prices and very soft gas prices. And the demand for you know people continues to drop. And, and so we've shown that, uh, and because petroleum engineers are committed to sort of one industry, we have uh, we're particularly exposed there. If uh, if you were a mechanical engineer, chemical engineer, you would have options. If one industry uh, fell off, you know, electrical engineers used to a lot. The electric power transmission and power generation people used to hire a lot of electrical engineers, but that industry has hired. Fewer and fewer electrical engineers. But double E majors have been able to go on and do something else, and the computational world and other things have grown and expanded for them. So, as a result, double E has grown as a major, and people still have options when one industry uh, diminishes. We only have one industry, and as uh, every time we have a downturn, uh, the employment prospects drop and the Enrollments in schools drops. We're seeing that now all across enrollment in the U.S. It's way down.
0: I have like three or four different questions, but let me throw out this one first. Um, You know, in your paper, you talk about cautionary tales from other engineering sectors. You just kind of, uh, you kind of teased that right there. Um, But you single out uh, mining engineering programs. And I think with an emphasis on coal mining engineering programs. Um, And you found 14 schools worldwide in your research offering mining engineering degrees. Undergrad, undergrad enrollment in these schools was less than 500, and that was back in 2014, and only 200 graduates annually. So, can you, can you tell me why these are
1: relevant stats to a petroleum engineer? Right. Well, of course, a uh, mining engineer used to be much, much larger. And mining engineering at one point was more or less tied with petroleum engineering as the highest paying uh, engineering graduates. Mining is another. It's very analogous to what petroleum engineers do. They are pretty much committed to one industry, although it doesn't matter whether you're mining tin or coal or, uh, you know, diamonds. They do more or less the same kind of extractive industries that we are in. They uh, also tie to geological understanding. There's there's quite an analog. And a lot of schools where there are mining degrees actually have petroleum degrees, whether it's in... Leoben in Austria, or Colorado School of Mines, uh, Rala. So these were very similar to us. And now while the mining industry has never been quite as large, the fact is mining itself has not declined in volumes. Mining, th- we mine more product out of the ground than we ever have in history.
0: But we need less people we to do that.
1: There's only a handful of, of uh, mining uh, products whose prices are going up chromium and some of the rare earth minerals but most of the rest of them the product prices remain soft and the emphasis is on productivity and they need fewer and fewer engineers to do the same work they use a lot of high-tech stuff in mining there are automated drilling rigs there are, you know, they, they invented geostatistics.
0: I think Rio, Rio Tinto gets brought up in this industry a lot. So for the people that don't know, that's the Australian mining magnet. And uh, in terms of automation, I don't, I, you know, the very, very few companies, industrial companies come close to what Rio Tinto's done.
1: So the, the analogs between mining and petroleum engineering are quite good. And the fact is, uh, in spite of their uses of big data, and whatever, the total demand for mining engineers has fallen. I also use that textile engineering example. Mm -hmm. And there's a degree that's more or less gone away. In the mid-70s, we had uh, a lot of schools that taught textile engineering. Where I was at Georgia Tech, uh, the reputation was you could get a job in textile engineering. That's no problem. But the reality is there's only one college left in America that teaches textile engineering. And almost no one gets a degree. And the average salary for all textile engineers is well under the average salary for mechanical and electrical engineers starting out of school, so that industry packed up and left the U.S. So uh, we've had this unusual event of all the North American growth in uh, unconventionals that's expanded opportunities for petroleum engineers domestically. Had that not happened, you know, we might very well already be that uh, down the path of mining and textile engineering.
0: That, that seems like a, an interesting and reasonable argument to make. Um, yeah, I want to get into a couple of other things. I, w- I want to explore why uh, this isn't an analog, though. So, you know, why isn't the oil and gas industry going to end up like uh, what happened to the coal mining uh, engineering sector?
1: Well, again, textile engineering, we make more cloth today than we've ever made in the history of the world. We make high-tech stuff. The opportunities for Oil and gas are so much larger than the mining and textile industries. We're much larger industries in in terms of total requirement. And oil and gas is really remaining uh, vitally important, at least for decades to come. So the real question is, how will petroleum engineers position themselves to be able to function with increased productivity to generate lower carbon uh, results? Uh, One of the things that I'm doing in terms of my research is quantifying the carbon intensity of remaining oil and gas reserves and looking at, uh, well, remaining oil and gas reserves is redundant for those of you out there, though, remaining resources. The important thing for us to remember is that if we look at all the demand, we've got to come up with more lower carbon production, lower carbon resources, uh, right now we have a lot of heavy oil that requires thermal recovery and a lot of burning natural gas and uh, that's a fairly highly carbon intensive product. A lot of the Canadian resources require uh, diluents to transport and, and they're high energy intensity. There are a lot of things going on in Canada to try to lower that carbon intensity to try to get them competitive. Uh, You know, Saudi crude has got a low carbon intensity, relatively speaking, because it doesn't take many wells. There's a low amount of water. We've got to remain competitive because there will ultimately be a price on carbon, uh, carbon tax, something uh, maybe not in the U.S. for a long time, maybe not in every country. But we're already seeing carbon prices around the world in dozens of countries, and some of them will become increasingly meaningful.
0: And we're seeing, uh, you know, especially the, uh, the super majors already anticipate this, um, and build this into the, some of their, their future plans. Um, and so one of the first steps though, takes, uh, takes engineers to figure out what those full cycle, um, carbon footprint that what that, that size is, let me, let me, uh, take a quick break and then we're going to, um, keep going here. Cause there's a lot more interesting points to cover. Hey, did you know that SBE members get up to a 50% discount in the SBE bookstore? Well, you do. Visit store.spe.org to find your next reading material. Many of these titles are available in both print and digital versions. That's store.sbe.org. All you need to do is log in to see your SBE member discount. More information is in the show notes of this episode. All right, Nathan, so... You, we've we've already gotten into some like you know really interesting uh points here but i want to i want to go back to you know what the petroleum engineering uh programs around the world what what do they need to be hearing from this message uh you know you you talk about um what the future petroleum engineering uh, uh professional's going to look like what is the future petroleum engineering student going to look like
1: well the good news is the future petroleum engineering students are very bright i mean i i probably spent No, there's no question. I spent more time at universities than most uh, uh, petroleum, uh, you know, SPE presidents. I really enjoyed that. And I'm increasingly convinced that we have students, whether they're in India, China, Indonesia, or North America, uh, that are as good in engineering students as anywhere. They were very impressive and they're very digitally savvy. And they anticipate working in a high tech industry. And so that's, that's where we've got to go, is where, where do we put the technology? How do we leverage to increase productivity? Uh, I remember on a, on a panel, someone with a, one of my, one of the service companies said, oh, this particular software will allow you to do the work of 25 engineers. And then a little while later, he said, oh, no, it won't decrease uh, employment. I said, wait a minute, what about those other 24 engineers?
0: We hear this a lot, you know, keep, keep, keep because we, that, that question is not answered enough in this in-
1: industry right now. Right. And, and really those other 24 engineers doing that thing that they were doing that's displaced by the software really are going to go. So the real question is then what are they going to do? Or do we need those other 24? Or uh, what can we do? And we clearly can do more. The productivity has to improve. We have to do a better job. Every time we look at an old field and really analyze that field very carefully, we always find opportunities to increase production. We always find opportunities to decrease water cuts or lower operating costs. We don't do that enough. We've we spent a lot of time doing Excel cross plots and chasing AFEs and trying to get the next well fracked. Uh, keeping up with rigs, um, that's fine and dandy when rig counts are through the roof but that's not really the thing that requires the smarter engineers and those digitally savvy engineers are going to be able to look at all the data which is completely rich with information and find ways to increase our oil and gas production lower our carbon intensity which means lowering the energy use improving the efficiency all of things all you know lowering carbon intensity is is good for the bottom line it's not just some environmental thing. Mm-hmm. So on one hand, you're,
0: you're saying that um, the, the engineering students uh, that are listening out there need to be thinking about their role in carbon management. And, I, and I've heard you say this back when you were president. When, uh, part of your stump speech was um, that, if, that if the uh, you know, carbon sequestration really takes off, you know, who are you going to call? Oh, you're going to call a reservoir engineer. Um, right, So there, there are uh, uh, segues to carbon management and lower carbon footprint initiatives that, that engineers should have a role in. Uh, but then on the other hand, you talk about this frustration of coming into an industry where, um, and I'm going to sort of paraphrase how I read your paper, but I have a, I have a lot more cool apps on my iPhone Uh, or my Android for you Android people than I do when I come to my oil and gas company. And I've heard this frustration from many people. I've heard it from guys who broke away from companies to do a startup uh, because they wanted to make that app that they didn't have at work. Uh, So, so on one hand we're talking about carbon management and the other hand, we're talking about uh, uh, the oil and gas industry um, meeting the digital desires of this next generation.
1: Sure. I mean, which is cooler, uh, google facebook or you know name an oil company uh you know no no oil company on that list is at the cool factor of some of the startups we had um you know i i have a a godson who actually interned for google facebook and uh uber so he he has got all these kind of uh, props he could have gone to work anywhere Uh, He's not considered an oil company, all right. And we need to attract those best and brightest. Uh, if if you're that if you're smart enough to solve any you know complicated difficult problems, and we've got our share, and they're very valuable, we need to be able to make sure we have those tools. And you know our companies, uh, uh, our parent company has just committed a lot of time and effort and money with uh, an AI organization, and we're going to be. We're going to be trying to do exactly that. And so, we're there, but we've also got a lot of other technology. People forget. I mean, you know, I, Gaffney Klein's owned by Baker Hughes. And, you know, we have all this nanotechnology stuff. We have quantum physicists. We, we've got all this, uh, you know, 3D printing, but it's not just, you know, it's titanium. We're looking at changing how the parts are. We're changing supply chain things. The stuff that petroleum engineers didn't, they don't really learn that in school. And we don't get exposure to the, that stuff. In the industry, obviously, we do. But we we don't really see that. And I think there are a lot of schools that are starting to react, particularly on the digital side, the AI, the big data side. Uh, what are they doing?
0: I mean, you know, th- th- this brings up the, the, the question, you know, what, what role do the schools have to play here?
1: Well, there are a couple of different approaches. And I think the direction that most of them are using – is to try to not try to convert their existing professors into big, you know, big data experts, because the people that really understand, uh, you know, the data scientists and the people that are AI type programmers, a lot of the universities have people and capabilities in there, and I think it's probably the best direction is to engage some of them in our problems and in teaching the students. There are there, there are increasing number of or sort of cross pollination opportunities, and I think that's really uh, an opportunity we have. Another thing is is frankly, I have a lot of sympathy for the professors who are looking at their curriculum and saying, "Look, ABET requires us to teach all these zillions of classes right now. The students hardly have any, uh, you know, options. They've got to you know basically take exactly what we told them." Uh, maybe we need to be looking at um, the bachelor's degree not to be the terminal degree. Uh, well, Maybe we should default like a geologist or geophysicist or biology major where you really don't get jobs until you have a master's degree. And uh, I think that would give people plenty of chances uh, at bachelor's degrees to uh, you know, really learn all these fundamentals but then spend a year and a half or so focusing on something that's a little more in an area they have, you know, selected, I I think that would be a real opportunity to give people who are interested in big data a chance to further their petroleum engineering, uh, you know, studies, and focus in a given area, you know, if they want to look at some nanotechnology applications, or they want to look at some supply chain related things, maybe you get an opportunity there to expand. Well, let me ask you this
0: other question. Um, you know, do you have to be a petroleum engineer? Uh, you, you've, you've brought it up in your talks before. Uh, you've raised the question about uh, degree portability. And, and we talked earlier about a downturn and the effects that can have uh, on this industry and, and the next how the next generation perceives the stability of it. Uh, do you, Should you become a chemical engineer with an emphasis on petroleum engineering?
1: Well, it's a good question. You know, I, uh, I started out I as a physics major. And then I got my subsequent degrees in petroleum engineering. I have a son who's a geologist. I have a son-in-law who's a chemical engineer trained uh, but became a drilling engineer. So I'm, I'm kind of invested in this question. Uh, for a long time, I really emphasized uh, that if you want to be a petroleum engineer, you know, get the petroleum engineering degree. And I still believe there's a good role for petroleum engineers. Chemical engineers, you know, and mechanical engineers, we hire them all the time. In fact, if you look over history, uh, oil and gas companies and service companies have hired every kind of engineer. We've hired agricultural engineers, and uh, a lot of them are trained internally by the companies subsequently. Uh, most of those companies, that training programs are long gone. They're victims of, of uh, cost reductions. So the petroleum engineers became a little more attractive. Now, you know, the biggest majors still hire plenty of chemical engineers, and and maybe more as petroleum engineers. In some cases, uh, I think that's really up to these individual decisions. I wish that the petroleum engineering degree we taught enabled people to go in a little broader area. Our job as engineers is to solve problems, and not to be trained just for one, for one industry. Uh, about 30 years ago, I was talking to a professor who said, "Well, you don't need to train graduates of our university because we are already trained. In fact, we we know how to. Uh, my students they're know, ready to go. We know out how of the to box. We know how to s- fill out this these forms and whatever else." I was like, "Yeah, my, my, I use my a decade to fill out those forms. I, I don't need an engineer for that. We I don't want you to be trained. The most important thing I is to learn how to think. That's what education is about. You need to solve." problems and you need to be able to solve problems that frankly your professors can't solve because we don't know what those problems are yet i'm i want to hire an engineer to solve problems that haven't even been identified yet so the most important thing is that we we make sure petroleum engineering is providing a, a broad enough education technically and then i think it can easily compete with chemical engineering and mechanical engineering we have a lot of chemical engineers who come over and get a master's in petroleum engineering. And I think that's also a very good approach.
0: Well, we have a little bit more time and uh, I want to get this last question out to you. Uh, This is, this goes kind of maybe full circle here in your paper, you estimate that only 20 to 25 of the oil and gas operations can be truly automated through all this AI technology and, and machine learning is coming out and, and the automation technologies themselves. That's a figure I haven't seen anybody uh, try to uh, quantify um, or, or put a put an actual number on. Can you unpack that and and talk about what 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 happens to the rest of the seventy five percent of those op- operations?
1: Right. So uh, that number of twenty five percent comes from a couple of different studies. We've we've been looking in detail at you know what do petroleum engineers do, what what do engineers and operators do, and we're very interested. You know how much of that could we actually automate, and and there. The creative part of this is going to be difficult, if not impossible, to automate. Uh, Now, designing a pumping unit is going to be fully automated.
0: Or or operating a pumping Uh, unit. And
1: maybe operating a pumping unit. Uh, uh, There used to be a degree called architectural engineering. And the vast bulk of what was done by architectural engineers is automated now. And so it was a you know, loads and, design. you know, designing a lot of the, the, not the creative part, but just the mechanical stuff to make sure, you know, it didn't fall apart. Uh, so the same thing is we're looking at what's happening, but almost all of the rest of it can be augmented and will be improved in terms of productivity. So you won't be able to just completely automate how oil and gas wells are, You know, you can automate how they're operated or how a gas plant is operated, uh, but you're still going to need people to uh, monitor those input credibility uh, checks in terms of the alarms. Um, You know, you look at what an oil and gas engineer does if you want to design a frack job. Well, you've got certain things you can run but you still have to work with a geologist. You still have to get input. You still have to uh, decide where you wanna be outside the box. Now, if you just wanna do a cookie cutter version of the previous thing, yeah, it's automated, but that's not why we hire engineers, okay? We, to go do here, go do what the other people did forever. That's gonna be fully automated. What we really need engineers to do is to push that boundary, you know, make it better.
0: Yeah, As I hear you talk, I hear, you know, we can automate a lot of things, but at this point in time in the foreseeable future, we're, we're not going to automate ingenuity. And, and that's where, you know, the, the human element, those interdisciplinary teams of, of different kinds of engineers and geologists brought together, um, that's, the, that's the thing that we're, we're not at danger of replacing with AI just yet.
1: When you collaborate with geologists, geophysicists, drillers, if you look back on your career, And you look back at the times when people came up with really great breakthrough ideas, things that really were innovative. Rarely was that one guy alone in the room, you know, with a, you know, pencil or computer or whatever. In general, people are getting inputs from lots of people and collaborating. That's going to be almost impossible to automate. You know, when when those decisions were made, you know, how are we going to commercialize deep water production? How are we going to get this on, you know, how are we going to deal with... Uh, this high CO2 content, natural gas, and no pipeline. You know, how are we going to deal with, uh, you know, for that matter, high gas oil ratios offshore, and we we can't vent and flare? Uh, You're going to have to collaborate. People, there's no way to automate something that hadn't been done. Automation happens, you know, when you look at a factory, uh, the cost... Well, you know, one rule of manufacturing is, you know, the th- if you make the same thing over and over again, the costs go way down. And if you make all unique individual custom ones, the costs don't go down. In fact, sometimes they go up. Uh, so we have this balancing act. We've got, you know, we'd like to lower those costs. We'd like to do lots of the same thing. But we still want to optimize and we still want to get better and improve the productivity and, and, and quality. So that balancing act is really an engineering decision.
0: Well, and as, as someone uh, put to me years ago, you know, in a car factory, you can see the beginning of the assembly line and the end of it. In a well, you know, when you start, the, the minute you start drilling, you can't see the end of your assembly line anymore. You're, you're you know, you're in the dark, and all the tools we have that can illuminate the subsurface, uh, there's still a uh, uh, there's still so many unknowns that we that we shouldn't draw too many analogies, uh, from manufacturing. When we look at, when we look at what they've done with automation, um, you know, Nathan, we this is a great subject. It's a, it's obviously been a, a very interesting paper that you've, that you put together. So we're going to have a link to it on our show notes. And, uh, for the thousands of people who have, uh, read it, they can go read it again or share it. And, uh, for those that haven't, uh, this will be your, your first time to go, uh, check out the, the, the thesis that, uh, Nathan's put together. Uh, do you have any final thoughts? Was there, was, was there something that you know, I didn't ask you here that, that you thought was important to uh, highlight for the listeners?
1: Well, I'm really excited about the future of petroleum engineering. I think we've got, you know, I, if, when we come back to this 10, 15, 20 years from now, I think you're going to find petroleum engineering is still a robust profession. It's going to be a more exciting profession. Uh, but we're going to either have to adapt or be left behind.
0: So long story short, it is still okay to tell your kids to go to petroleum engineering school, folks. Don't count them out yet. So with that, I I think we'll close this episode. I really appreciate your time, Nathan. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. We want to keep this conversation going, so please use the hashtag SBE Podcast on all your social media channels to reach out to us. Please leave your comments. Give us five-star reviews. We'd really love to hear from you guys. Uh, and you can find the SBE Podcast wherever you get your podcast. Just search for us on your Podbean, on Apple, uh, Spotify, TuneIn, and we're also online at sborg slash podcast. And of course, we want you to read JPT online and in print. Make sure to bookmark us and check in for new content all the time. The SPE Podcast is produced by Jason Notoris. I'm Trent. See you next time.
1: SPE Podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers, whose vision is to advance the oil and gas community's ability to meet the world's energy demands in a safe, environmentally responsible, and sustainable manner. Learn more at SPE.org.